0: Gina Della from Pella. Choose five years no interest and five months no first payment or 10 year 2.99 APR financing ends August 31st. Set your free consultation today at PellaWI.com slash radio or 855 PellaWI.
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. The Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
0: Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So, Melissa, before you leave, you know who Carrie Fisher is, right? Debbie Reynolds' I do, daughter. yeah. You know, she played the Star Wars, Star Wars movies yep. and stuff. Well, she passed away a year or two ago. Um, yeah, I think it was Princess Leia. She was Princess Leia, but, you know, she did a lot of other stuff as well mm-hmm. and sort of uh, you know, had demons, I guess would be the best way to describe it. But, she, you know, she did a, a one-woman show um, that was very interesting where she talked about her life and stuff. And, because mm-hmm. she was in the celebrity spotlight because her mother was Debbie Reynolds. And this is before a lot of people's time. But Debbie Reynolds was America's sweetheart back in the the 50s and early 60s. And she was married to um, Eddie Fisher, who was this big, big singer and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then it was this huge scandal because Eddie Fisher left Debbie Reynolds to run off with um, Elizabeth Taylor. This was the big oh, thing. Yeah. Okay. And, and so, like, Eddie leaves America's sweetheart and, you know, runs off with Elizabeth Taylor, and then, proving that, that karma can be a you-know-what, then Elizabeth Taylor meets Richard Burton, leaves, leaves Eddie Fisher, Richard right? Burton. And then, and, and, oh. and Eddie Fisher did not age well. He had a, he had a his career kind Ooh. of, he had issues with drugs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But anyways, so but that was the background. But so Carrie Fisher... Um, the daughter of Debbie and Eddie, Eddie mm-hmm. you know, kind of grew up in the spotlight. She was sort of Hollywood royalty and stuff. And Debbie Reynolds hang around for a long time. In any event, Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia, at one point in time, she um, she dated Dan Aykroyd of the, like the Blues Brothers and Saturday Night Live and stuff. But she ended up getting married to Paul Simon of Simon and Garfunkel. So I was unaware of that. Right. Well, OK. So okay, that and, makes sense. Okay, OK. So she she got married to Paul Simon, and the marriage didn't didn't last and stuff. But if you listen to her one woman show, which they, she did and it was on HBO a number of years ago, it's it's. Um, my gosh, it's something wishful drinking or something is what it's called, where she talks about her, her different addictions and, rights yeah. and stuff and, and all that she never, I think, really kind of got past. But anyhow, she's talking about how she married to Paul Simon and and how that that kind of didn't work out. She was sort of repeating a lot of the the, the same path that her mother followed. She ended up kind of following as well. But Paul Simon wrote a song about her and she she's in the thing. She always says, look, here's the bottom line. If you ever get a chance, I mean, this is my advice. If you ever get a chance to have Paul Simon write a song about you, do it. Do it. You know, just do a, it. Do, yes. do it. Because you know, it's, okay. So it, yeah. it was. It was cool, and and it's a song called "She Moves On," and I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure a lot of people. You know, it's not one of his most famous songs, but but he wrote it. He he wrote mm-hmm. it about her, and I've always remembered that because she's like, do it. You know, it, it's just sort of cool. You've got this big rock and roll star who has written a song about you, right? Yeah, it's cool. Well. Okay, there's Paul Simon writing a song about his soon-to-be ex-wife that might be cool. Then, then there's other things that you do to get put into a song. And this is my useless but important piece of information for today. You You will know the song. Here it is. rock and roll songs of all time. That is, of course, the song, We're an American Band, by, um, by Grand Funk Railroad. Went to number one in 1973. Remained on the Billboard chart for 17 weeks. But it is a staple of rock and roll shows. Now, why do I, why do I bring this up? Because the, the way this whole the song starts out. Out on the road for 40 days. Last night in Little Rock. Put me in a haze. Sweet, sweet Connie doing her act. She had the whole show. And that's a natural fact. There is a real Connie. All right, now I bring this up because the the woman featured in the start of that great song um her name well she she's her name is Connie Hamsey, and I bring this up because she passed away over the weekend at the age of of sixty six and it's one of the most fascinating backstories that that's out there and i I saw this and I was kind of intrigued by it um Connie Hamsey. Was a legendary groupie who um, was a a fan of various rock. She was based out of Little Rock, Arkansas, and um, let's see, how can I say this in a PG thirteen fashion? But but yes, she she knew she knew the guys with Grand Funk Railroad, and she knew a long list of of other um, other lar- other big rock groups. A uh, matter of fact, she she claimed that she claimed that she had, she had been intimate. Her rock and roll lovers included members of The Who, Led Zeppelin, The Eagles, Bad Company, the Albin Brothers Band, all three members of ZZ Top, the Doobie Brothers, Willie Nelson, Kiss frontman Gene Simmons, Huey Lewis, Peter Frampton, Neil Diamond, Rick Springfield. and And she was not shy about this, but she was apparently legendary. She claims that when he was the governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton uh, kind of hit on her, but they couldn't find a room. <laughs> so, but, And she talked freely about this. I'm not telling tales out of school. Her, her life was as a professional groupie, and she was one of, there, there were a handful of them back in the time who, you know, went on to tell their stories. If you saw the great Cameron Crowe movie, Almost Famous, um, the, the Penny Lane character in that movie, played by Kate Hudson, is based on a, on a California-based um, quote-unquote groupie named Pamela de de Baris. But but um this young lady Connie, sweet sweet Connie, memorialized in an American band. Well, that was based on this woman in in Little Rock, Arkansas who um she had a fondness for drummers i guess is what, <laughs> that's what she would describe but she spent her entire life you know talking about this till till the day she died she would apparently set up court and she never really got out of arkansas but she was she would do these different shows and she would she would share free, freely her life with all these different rock and roll stars and all and it it always kind of made me wonder And you see these stories about, I mean, I understand it was a different time, like the 60s and 70s and stuff, but when your claim to fame is you are this rock and roll groupie, I I wonder... You know how, how do you adapt moving forward? I mean, ten years later, when you're sitting down and you're on your first date with somebody, you know, when they say, "Well, you know," you start to, to talk about things, and well, what did you do in the '60s? Well, I, you know, I, I toured with uh, Grand Funk Railroad, and I toured with the Allman Brothers. Well, I didn't really tour with them. I I was kind of a groupie to the stars. You kind of wonder how how does that 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 whole kind of thing play out? But but she she embraced it. Apparently, she was a substitute teacher in Little Rock for a while until people found out about oh, her her past, and then a number of the parents weren't thrilled about her continuing to teach their kids, and that, that job kind of blew up. But anyhow, if you ever hear, like, names of women and stuff in some of these really famous songs, and you wonder if they're completely made up, or you wonder if they're real people, well, okay, for, for this song, an American band, Sweet Sweet Connie doing her act, there really was a Sweet Sweet Connie, and her backstory is absolutely fascinating. She passed away over the weekend, but... Um, I'm thinking, you know, you wonder, gee, would you be embarrassed about being in that song? And I, She clearly, 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 clearly embraced it. And it sounds like she was a woman who lived life on her own terms, and you gotta love it. Back with more in just a minute.
2: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
0: I don't want this to be a rhetorical question. But in all seriousness, how much more of this are we collectively going to tolerate? Now, over the past, not last weekend, but the two weekends before that, four people died on Milwaukee roadways as a result of, of they were innocent victims who were smashed into by people who were involved in street racing, reckless driving, in and out of traffic, blowing through red lights, and they both happened to be, in all in cases, both of the collisions that killed people, that the cars happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So seven 7 o'clock, August 15th, that would have been, what, a Saturday, two Saturdays ago, police respond to a crash, North 76th Street, West Silver Spring Drive, so 76th and Silver Spring. A major thoroughfare that if you, like me, have grown up around here, you have probably been past that intersection on many, many occasions. Okay, upon arrival, the officers saw two severely damaged cars, a purple Ford Fusion with two occupants trapped inside, and a silver infinity that was driven by a 25-year-old guy named Michael... Howard who was sitting on the ground behind it. According to the complaint and witnesses, here's what happened. The Infinity driven by Howard was racing a red car and was traveling, oh, in the neighborhood of, of probably at one point in time, over a hundred miles an hour driving northbound on 76th Street. So flying up 76th Street at over 100 miles an hour. Witnesses say that the car was driving next to another car they were racing, they were swerving through traffic lanes, traveling through parking lanes, cutting off other motorists, blowing through red lights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, what happened is apparently as they're coming up to this this intersection, what you have is you have that the car, the purple Ford Fusion Um, traveling southbound into the intersection was making a left turn to go eastbound on Silver Spring Drive, and the cars that are going at a high rate of speed slam into them, and the two people that are behind the wheel of the car, they they are, they are killed. The explanation given by Howard, that would be the driver of the car, is that, well, he he was um, he, he thought that he would have been able to slow down to, he thought, somewhere in the neighborhood of 55 miles an hour. A witness to say it was probably closer to 80 miles an hour, but he sees this car. He's driving at such a high rate of speed. He can't react, so he smashes into him. Two people are, are dead. Dead. All right. Now, you know, we've talked about this before, and we've discussed the whole plague of reckless driving and how you take your life into your own hands, but here, here's one of the dazzling details. Now, you, you have people driving over 100 miles an hour, again, driving in this reckless fashion, no regard at all for for human life. Well, here's the other dazzling detail, and you knew this was going to be the case, but this is what the Journal Sentinel reports. Howard... That would be the 25-year-old man who murdered two people. Howard, Howard's driver's license is in a, quote-unquote, suspended status, according to the criminal complaint. Howard has been found guilty of operating after suspension numerous times and has had multiple speeding violations, according to the complaint. All right, multiple s- s- situations where he has been found guilty Of operating after suspension. So he's lost his driver's license. He lost his driver's license a long time ago, presumably. He is not allowed to legally have it, and yet he's continued to be out on the roadways, and he's continued to get caught driving without a valid driver's license. And what has happened? Well, he's just been turned back loose onto the streets to do it over and over and over again. And now finally, he's hit, he's killed two people. So my guess is he's going to be going to prison for the next 10, 15, 20 years, whatever that sentence is. But it doesn't bring those two people he killed back, which raises the question of why in the hell are we allowing people who have been found guilty of operating after suspension numerous times, why are we allowing them back out on the street knowing that they are going to continue to get behind the wheel of a car and knowing that this is the ultimate result of what's going to happen. Why do we wait until two people are dead before now we finally say, "Okay, this guy is a menace and he's got to go to prison and he's going to go to a prison for a long time. But my question is, shouldn't he been in prison a long time before this? In all seriousness, we do nobody a favor by taking these people who don't give a rat's rump about anything else, who have the impulse control of fruit flies, catch them time and time again driving without a valid license, and don't do anything to them. 855-616-1620. That's the Accurate mortgage talk and text line. If this man had been sent to jail or prison... At anywhere along the way, at the numerous times that he had been found guilty of driving without a license, there would be two people who would be alive today. How many more people have to die before we recognize that we've got to start putting people in prison and have consequences for driving on suspended licenses, driving without a license 855-616-1620. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You knew this guy's record was going to look like this. You you just knew it. But, but yet we just send them back out on the streets. Oh, you just got caught speeding, driving 80 miles an hour. You don't have a valid driver's license. Fine, here we're going to give you a ticket. And then two days later, people are out doing the same darn thing. At some point in time, don't we have to start saying enough is enough and recognizing that reckless driving and people driving without valid licenses need to be taken off the street? And if that means they got to be put in jail, why don't we put them in jail? 855-616-1620, we discuss.
1: Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
0: 855-616-1620, which is the accident mortgage talk and text line. Uh, Ben in South Milwaukee asks an interesting question. Jeff, where is Mayor Barrett on this? He is just so absent. Well, no, he he came out and appropriately so denounced the the, the, the senseless death, frustrated with the reckless driving. But, But that's giving lip service to this stuff. It is not enough. When we heard this story, you knew this was going to be the case. You knew that this idiot had would have had a lengthy record. It would have been no driver's license, continuing to drive. You know, I'm getting a couple texts from people who are actually Milwaukee police officers who don't want to go on the air. They're just saying they're, they're, they're frustrated with this. They find this situation over and over and over again. You stop people, reckless driving or whatever, and, and we find out they don't have a valid license, and they don't care. They just don't care. So you give them a ticket, they tear up the t- ticket they don't pay for it regardless and then you know six you know six hours later 60 minutes later they're back driving the same way they laugh at this system and unless look here's what we need to do and you need to get serious about it And i'm not kidding first of all you need to start impounding cars you are driving a car that you don't have a license for first of all that car gets impounded and if it's your car Boom, let's go to forfeit it. If somebody else's car, they've got to come in and they've got to, I think, demonstrate that they're an innocent owner and they had no idea that you did it. Okay, that's number one. You start taking the cars. I guarantee you that will get the attention of some people, plus the people that enable these murderers. Secondly, all right you've gotten your license suspended and by the way you got to work you got to work to get your driver's license suspended i mean it's not like it's something that just automatically happens overnight but if you are driving without a valid license or you were driving with a suspended license once you get caught boom pull out the bracelets put you in custody take you downtown let you sit overnight in jail let you bail out all right maybe i'm not you don't need i don't know 90 days or 6 months in the house of correction the first time you get caught but when you do it again Yes, at that point in time, we're going to start recognizing that you are a menace. And if you refuse to pay attention to the rules and you continue to drive without a license, yeah, you're going to go to jail for 90 days. And then if you get out and you do it again, then boom, you're going to go to jail for six months. And then if you do it again, yes, we're going to put you in jail for a year. And if you, at sooner or later, people will either get the message, but even if they don't, The bottom line is the roads are going to be safer for the rest of us because these people that don't care aren't going to be out there driving. Why do we wait until somebody like this 25-year-old guy Finally, 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 driving 80 or 90 miles an hour kills two people. Well, now everybody says, okay, well, let's put him in jail. Well, all all right, that's fine. I got no problem. He's going to prison for a long time. But two people died needlessly, needlessly, because we didn't deal with him in the beginning. And this happens on a daily basis in the city of Milwaukee. It's time to say enough is enough. And rather than Tom Barrett talking about, well, I think we should call the Hyundai and come Complain that the cars are too easy to steal. Why didn't he start calling out people in the court system for allowing these dangerous people to be out on the street time after time after time? Where are the citizens putting pressure on the elected officials and the DA's office and the judges? That this is going to continue to go on until people say enough is enough. How many more people have to die?
1: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs>
0: Phrase that is being thrown around is recipe for disaster, and and sometimes I think that's overused. But in this case, this does seem like a recipe for disaster. Okay, here, here's the deal: um, University of Wisconsin at at Madison, or as we call it, Fred, because um, James Madison, the fourth president of the United States, is now run afoul of the politically correct and the perpetually offended because he he was a slave owner and so you have all these people who are just appalled at the name of, of of Madison and Madison is of course named after James Madison so as we've talked about like a couple times, James Madison High School in Madison is now being renamed because people are offended that it's named after the fourth president, which then raises the larger question of, well, okay if that's the case, you know, how can any of our progressive friends who live in the capital of the state of wisconsin how can you live with being living in a, in a city named after this racist terrible president if we've got to change the name of the high school change that from madison i don't we have to change the name of the city where is that outrage where is the leadership from tony evers and my suggestion would be let's not call it madison anymore let's just call it fred you know university of wisconsin fred but but again i i digress so anyhow out in what is still, at least for the moment, called Madison. At the University of Wisconsin, Madison, they have various forms of housing. You've got dorms, and you've got the off-campus apartments. What they also have is is a, some university-owned, there's an apartment complex that the university took over a number of years ago, and it's called Eagle Heights. And it it's, again, these, these are apartments, and it's on the northwest edge of campus. Uh Eagle Heights, let me see. I have the numbers here. It's actually relatively large. They've got they've got uh, over 1100 residences that that are there. So there's over like 1100 people that live at at Eagle Heights. Most of the people who live in these apartments are graduate students or Students who are working on, on postgraduate things like, like doctorates. And most of them tend to be older and they live in these areas with their, their families. So there's lots of, there's lots of kids that live in these, these complexes as well. Like I say, there's about fifteen fifteen hundred 1500, 1500 residents who live in Eagle Heights, these apartments, including 327 children. And for almost all of these 327 children, they're too young to be vaccinated. So that, that's kind of the backdrop. So you've got children too young to be vaccinated that, at least for COVID, that are living there. And this is, again, it's, it's kind of a quasi adult sort of thing. You don't have kids. You have, you, you have, you don't have college age students. It tends to be like the older students, the graduate students and the, the postgraduate students. Okay. So why are we talking about Eagle Heights? Well, here's what the university has decided to do. Okay, they're they're opening up and they're trying to wrestle with the idea of what happens if a student gets COVID. All right? Now, in last year, for example, if somebody got COVID, what they would do is they would move them to a, a quarantine dorm, like a dorm floor or something else that was designated, and, and boom, that's where they would stay while they were we were getting over COVID. Well, this year the university has decided well, we're we're not going to we're not going to reserve a dorm floor because we've got demand for student housing. In addition, we're not going to rent out hotel space because hotel space is in demand. And by the way, um, lots of the hotel rooms are already taken, especially around Wisconsin Badgers football teams, football games. So, OK, we, we've got a kid who's in the dorms who tests positive for for covid. So what are we going to do with them? Well, we, we can't put them in a hotel. Because again, we've got people, the hotels are all taken up, but people are going to come in and watch the football games. We can't move them to a a separate designated dorm because we we don't want to set aside those rooms because we've got more kids that are coming in and we want to be able to make money by renting the dorm space out to them. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to move the COVID kids into about 30 vacant apartments that are in this eagle heights apartment complex where you have young families and children <laughs> okay now th- these these graduate students and these postgraduate students are saying wait a second you know we we you know we're, we're not anti science or anything like this but but w- what what could be a worse solution we've got our children that are here you're going to taking be taking kids that are are infectious and you don't want them to be around other kids, so you're going to – college-age students – so you're going to move them in into these apartments, in this apartment complex where we're all living together. Plus, the university says well, we don't want to stigmatize people, so we're not going to identify the kids who, who have COVID and who don't. So when the kids are out and about or walking down the hallways or whatever, the families and their children, they're not going to know who has COVID or, or not. Our number, 855-616-1620, that is the Accunate Mortgage talk and text line. I'm sure there is a worse way to handle this, but honestly, I'm not sure what that would be. These postgraduate students and these doctorate students, uh, many of whom have young families, are are just appalled by this. And in a, in another world, if you said, hey, we're going to take kids that have young, we're going to take teenagers and young adults that have COVID and who are contagious and we're going to move them out of the dorms and we're going to move them in close proximity to 327 children if you would say that in any sort of context people would look at you and say are you nuts and yet that is precisely what UW Madison is doing 8556161620 that's the equity mortgage talk and text line what do you think about this? And I guess my answer would be that this is about as bad a way to approach this as I can possibly imagine. To me, you, you either have to carve out dorm rooms or require kids to quarantine in, in their dorm, um, or alternatively, you, you send the kids home, but you don't move them in with with children. 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? We discuss You're listening
1: to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620.
0: Eight five five six one six one six twenty. It's interesting. The story I'm looking at, a number of the, these residents who live in these apartments now, um, who have their children that live in these apartments, you know, they're sitting there saying, you know, the university is telling us nothing to see here, um, that we don't think that there's an increase in risk, to which these folks say, well, then, then why don't you just leave them in the dorms? Why are you sending these people who will be infected with COVID into a, a close into a, an apartment complex where there's hundreds of unvaccinated children that are around. If you don't think there's a risk, wouldn't you just be better off leaving them in the dorms? One of the guys quoted says, to me, telling us there's no added risk is just absurd. It's just not honest. And then they're frustrated, again, that UW won't even tell the residents which units are going to be used as isolation and quarantine because they don't want to violate the privacy of the kids that get COVID, so that the, the neighbors, the residents, they don't even know to avoid this so if you have somebody that's got covid who's walking around that that complex you're not going to know it you, you don't really know it 855-616-1620 dave in cedarburg dave you're in wtmj
3: good morning Hi, dave. good afternoon um yeah i think i think they honestly people any of those students could could get nothing so if they you know if they have it and they're there i think their parents missed an opportunity to get them vaccinated and they ought to be sent home frankly um and all of this um, stuff wouldn't be an issue if the you know Republican legislators didn't uh, put through the rule that they won't allow them to test them to be uh, on campus. That absolutely should have happened.
0: Well, I, Dave, I, I don't I just I want to resist this urge to. To, to play politics with this, and I understand people want to see this in in different political lights. All, all I know is that, you know, if you test positive, look, of, of course you have to be quarantined. I don't see what's wrong necessarily with quarantining in place. I also, I mean, candidly, I I don't think it's bad to send the kids home. Now, some people are saying, well, if you send them home, that, that they might, um, you know, be around their parents who are, you know, older and maybe they're prone to, um, you know, have have a worse result. Well, okay, but at least that's their parents. You're taking care of your family members as opposed to to dumping these kids into an area with strangers who who have who have children. Um Look, the the best way to do this, and again, this is I don't know if the best way to look at it is greed. Uh, it, it would have been to again do what they la- did last year and set aside a, a wing of a dorm for I mean the, the kids that test positive for COVID for quarantine, and then like see I mean who knows look, look hopefully there's not going to be a huge outbreak, but this would have been the way to do it. But apparently they didn't want to do it because they didn't want to give up. The revenue for kids wanting to come in and and live there. So now they're faced with this situation that well we we don't want to give up the revenue that we'll lose if we had to like reserve X number of rooms and heaven forbid that we should try to get resu- r- rooms in hotels because you know we want people to be able to come in and stay in the hotels for the football games. So we'll send the kids over and if they get the 327 children who live say if they infect any of those kids well we'll we'll live with this. Jeff, my niece is to be a freshman at UW Madison. All. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. Why would you possibly infect all those childrens in the Eagles Heights apartments? What needs to happen, in my opinion, is that the quarantine occurs in a very separate residential facility. And, and that would be the thing that you know, I, I think makes sense. Jeff, UW must be following Cuomo's example of moving covid patients into nursing homes. What could possibly go wrong with that? Yeah, that's yeah, that that. All oh, right. I, I said I couldn't think of a of a, a dumber response than what UW's decided to do with this. I take it back. Right the, right. the the dumbest thing would be, hey, you know, we've got some uh, nursing homes here in uh, the greater Madison area. We've got some nursing homes that, um well, I mean, lots of people have moved out of or whatever because of the pandemic. Yeah, we'll, we'll rent a wing in the nursing home. Right. I, I stand right. So I do stand corrected. That would be even dumber than what they are doing. But let's face it. This is this is pretty dumb. Jeff, they should close one dorm building and use it. Well, yeah, you might not even need to. Close an entire building. Jeff, um, look, if there is a wing or a floor and they have a supervisor to make sure six students don't leave, I don't know that this is a problem. It should work really well. Well, it, it's not a wing or a floor. These are, these are apartments that are scattered throughout an apartment complex. And, and you know, they're, they're not all occupied. So what you're, you're not separating them in wings or anything, you're going to have kids. So, like, imagine an apartment. These are vacant apartments that are in this overall complex. So, in any given row of apartments, the way I understand it, maybe you've got, like, six or seven apartments, you know, all, all in a row, and, you know, one or two are vacant, and so you're gonna put the COVID kids in, in these apartments. You know, it's not like you're gonna be necessarily separated, at least, that's my understanding with this. Jeff, all I can say is our government uh, government funded institutions cannot make a decision that is proper and a just mandate. Um, so I guess you have to decide about you know how you're going to handle this. Let's talk to Tammy. Tammy in Germantown, you're on WTMJ.
2: Hi, good afternoon. Um, Hi. I am not necessarily yeah, in a, in agreement that they you know, should be scattered throughout the apartment, but I don't think that it's a real big deal because if they're stay a quarantine means they should be staying in their apartment, not going out. Um, so I guess I don't really see the issue. They they're not going to be running up and down the halls playing pig with the unvaccinated kids, um, or they shouldn't be. Um, well, well, you know, well, then why don't you send them home?
0: Why don't we send them home then? Why, why do we even well, risk exposing?
2: Yeah. yeah, then we're exposing family members and everybody okay. maybe they don't have a car to drive themselves there and o- to Okay, so there you and, so
0: you're you're rather than okay, your kid gets covid rather than having your kid sent home so mom and dad can control him, you'd rather send him over to these other rooms and then hope he stays inside and doesn't come into contact with the 3 or 400 children that live in the area.
2: Yep, I I think that's... Um, that if they're doing what they're supposed to be, if they're staying in that apartment, there should be, and there's no um, shared air exchange between apartments. I don't see it's a problem. My daughter uh, goes to a different college. She had to do a uh, quarantine last year, and now hers was in a dorm, in a wing, but, you know, that was set up that way, obviously, more frequently last year. And she was told, you are not to leave this room when they brought her her food, put it outside her door, and she was inside that room for. 10
0: days. Why even move them out of the dorms? Why not just let them let them stay in the dorm room?
2: Well, I think at that point it depends on what they've got. If they have a bathroom in their dorm, well, mm-hmm. then I don't know that there's a real problem. But if they have a shared bathroom, then that's not feasible.
0: No, okay, good enough. Thanks for- every time
2: they go out of their room.
0: Okay, well, right, Tammy, I I, I get it. I um, I, I'm I'm sorry. I, I think that I, I think the more responsible thing would be then then let's send them home and, and and you're right then then mom and dad have to you know mom and dad have to deal with it but I think that that would be a better situation for mom and dad having to figure out how to deal with it, and a more fairer thing than figuring out, hey, you're going to be you know living in proximity to all these other people who, who've who now th- this is going to this is going to be the COVID apartments, and yeah, you're, you're living in the COVID apartments, and yeah, and I understand it sounds great. Well, we're going to tell people you know don't go out and don't leave, but it's not like you're going to have somebody standing guard outside the, these houses or anything like that outside the apartment doors. That's just not the way that it's it's going to work Uh, again um my guess is tammy if you were living with your family and your children in those apartments and you suddenly found out that hey that vacant apartment next door huh we're going to use that for kids that have covid i I think you know maybe that might be a result where you know your, your your feelings on this might be a little bit different just saying back with more in just a couple minutes this is jeff wagner
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
0: I want to tell you a story about somebody named David Gilbert. Now, I've got to take you back in time to the the 60s. And just like, well, 1975, we had the U.S. government uh, abandon you know South Vietnam, and you had the, you know the fall of Saigon, and just like there's draws strong parallels to what's going on in Afghanistan. Back back in the in the early nineteen sixties, the U.S. <clears throat> under President Kennedy, and then later escalated under President Johnson, and then escalated more under President Nixon, was getting involved in in the Vietnam War, and you had a number of college activists who were upset about that, and that brings me. That brings me to David Gilbert. Uh, David Gilbert was at Columbia University in New York in 62. In March of 65, he founded something called the Independent Committee on Vietnam, and then later he co-founded the Columbia chapter of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, okay? So he was a, a campus advocate, and, and SDS was this this radical radical arm of the, like, anti-war movement. Okay, so that, that's the background of this. Well, what happened is, um, he, he gradually became more militant. And became part of a group called the Weathermen, the the Weather Underground, which were a small group of radicals that were, I I think, you know, interested in sort of like the violent overthrow of the U.S. government and, you know, using violence to try to stop the war in Vietnam. So, okay, so here's the deal. In the late 70s and early 80s, Gilbert and other activists joined Something And, you know, they come up with all these different names and and they join something called the Revolutionary Armed Task Force, which is described as an alliance of white revolutionaries under the leadership of the Black Liberation Army. On October 20th of 1981, this Revolutionary Armed Task Force. And and this is just it's a bunch of crazy lefties who are way out on the, the fringe. Well, anyhow, they decided to participate with several members of the Black Liberation Army in the armed robbery of a Brinks armored car at a a mall in, in, in New York. So here's the deal. Gilbert and a, a woman named Kathy Bowden. They they were the wheel people. They were the getaway car drivers. So what happened is they waited in a U-Haul truck in a nearby parking lot while other armed members of this group took another vehicle to the mall where a Brinks truck was making a delivery. So the, the folks who drive this um, car there confront the Brinks guards and a shootout ensues. One Brinks guard is is wounded and another is killed in the, this robbery. So then the robbers take $1.6 million in cash, and they, they flee back, they run back to this U-Haul where Gilbert and this Catherine Bowden are, are waiting. They're, they're the getaway car drivers. So now you have one Brinks guard that's dead, another that's wounded, and these people have stolen $1.6 million. So they, they take off. Gilbert's driving the car. They, they take off. The truck is soon stopped at a police roadblock. At which point in time, this gang decides that they are going to shoot it out with the cops. And two police officers are murdered in in the shootout. Okay? And then what happens is they they flee. Um, So Gilbert, David Gilbert, he's, again, he's the wheel man. He's the getaway car driver. You know, he's... wasn't involved in directly shooting people, but he's driving the people that are are shooting and killing the the police officers. He flees the area with other members of of this group, but um, he's not as good as getting away at some of them. and, And so he gets caught by police that day. He was convicted in 1983 and sentenced to 75 years in prison for three counts of felony murder. Felony murder is the idea that, you know, if you're part of a conspiracy and the logical... One of the logic as part of the the ongoing crime if somebody else, one of your co conspirators, for example, commits you know, kills somebody and you're part of that conspiracy, you are liable for it. I mean again it's the idea you're the getaway car driver in the bank robbery. Somebody walks into the bank, a bunch of people go in the bank with shotguns, you're the getaway car driver, they kill a couple of the tellers. Well, you're responsible for what your co conspirators did. So he gets convicted of felony murder, one Brinks guard, two cops dead. All right. Gets 75 years in prison. Why? Why, Jeff, are you telling me the story of David Gilbert, who was convicted in 1983 and is still serving a a sentence for his involvement in the murder of a Brinks guard and two two police officers? Well, I'm telling you this story because Andrew Cuomo, the sleazebag governor, now ex-governor of New York, on his way out the door has now commuted the sentence of David Gilbert. Of all the people in the world that that ethically challenged Andrew Cuomo could have picked to show mercy to. He picks this guy who's responsible who was instrumental in and was an aider and a better, a conspirator in the murder of three People, two law enforcement officers, a Brinks guard, and the shooting of someone else. Yes, he has commuted the guy's sentence. Now, it doesn't mean that he's automatically going to get out, but he will be, I believe, immediately eligible for parole. Yeah, Um in addition to going out the door, not only does Cuomo decide he's going to commute the sentence of of David Gilbert, he also decides he's going to commute the sentence of at least three other people who were convicted of murder. He's commuting the sentences of murderers, on his way out the door. Now, I've always, and I've argued this in all the years I've been on the radio, I've had huge problems with, with the pardon power that we give to governors and that we give to presidents, and especially the way they use it, or I would argue misuse it, deciding that, you know, we're going to wait until our last day in office, and, and then we're going to make all these pardons that we would have never made if we hadn't been voted out, or in the case of Cuomo, forced to resign because of all the misconduct he engaged in. I mean, I just, I think it's bad policy. And I think it's an insult. But Cuomo, as if he could not disgrace himself more, on the way out, decides that the people he's going to commute the sentences of include, well, like I say, there's four people convicted of murder. but, But this one in particular, a guy who was the wheel man in one of the most notorious crimes of the 1970s that resulted in three people being dead, including police officers, as you might expect the law enforcement community is not responding extremely well um here's uh, uh, you know uh, the the people who for example Remember the, the folks that lost their lives? Um, it's absurd. Arthur Keenan Jr., a retired detective for the Nyack Police Department, who was wounded in the shootout, said on Monday, he said, Mr. Cuomo is stabbing all of law enforcement in the back. And when I say all, I'm talking about federal, state, and local, all across the whole country, because he is a traitor. <laughs> you know, well, I don't like to throw around terms like that, but if you wondered the character of Andrew Cuomo, and you wondered whether or not you know, the community, the state and the country is better off that this guy is no longer in office. Well, all you have to do is look at what he does as he's going out the door, commuting the sentence of somebody involved in one of the most notorious crimes of the 1970s. It's almost unbelievable. Okay, when we come back, are you offended? I'll give you the story and we'll discuss. You're listening to Jeff Wagner
1: on WTMJ.
0: Here's one of my texts, Jeff. I think this was just Cuomo's way of giving the finger on the way out the door, to which my response would be, you think? <laughs> no, no, I, I mean, I, I agree completely. But what kind of a sleaze bag is this? And look, and, and I understand, to, to me, and I haven't, by the way, been really critical of, for example, Tony Evers, who has used the pardon power a, a lot. Like I say, if I was the governor, I think I'd be more circumspect. But at least Evers... Evers in Wisconsin has picked people who did dumb stuff early on and have gone on to who've um, gone on to live. Otherwise, successful, productive lives, and so I mean, it's like okay, you you do something stupid, you you know, you're you're 18 years old, and you get caught for selling some pot or something like that, and you know, 30 years later, 35 years later, you're you're looking for a pardon or something because again, you you want to get that off your record, and and I don't have an issue with those sort of things. I, I mean, I think there is a value to redemption, but this this guy was the wheelman in in a murder. There are three people, including two police officers, dead. There were other people that were wounded, and and this guy was the one that was driving the getaway car in connection with this entire situation. And to, to me... Like I say, if, if this is the most deserving example you can find, somebody to give a pardon to, well, that, that there must not be too many people deserving of pardons in in New York State. And I agree with the the texter. This is Andrew Cuomo is a slug, and this was his final way of saying, you know what, to the the people of New York and the people of this country on on his way out. If he felt so strongly that there was justification for pardoning this, the wheel man in this notorious bank robbery, well, then he should have had the guts to do it a year ago or two years ago or or three years ago or before he was standing for election, not when he's resigning in disgrace. And this is a black eye to the whole pardon power, and it's also an insult to everybody in law enforcement all across the country. And you you wonder whether or not his brother, Chris, who is the enabler, the younger brother who's on CNN, wonder whether brother Chris is going to talk about this. I won't hold my breath on that um you know jeff i'm embarrassed to be a democrat today somebody says well again i don't want this to be this isn't part this isn't republican and democrat because republicans trust me over the years you've had republican presidents who've made in my opinion some really really bad pardons just like you've had democrats presidents who made bad pardons but this one this one this this takes the cake all right I want to switch gears. College football season is starting. No, no, this isn't a topic about college football. There was a survey that was recently done by an Illinois company called Quality Logo Products. Um it's it's a it's a nationwide company that prints logos on on t-shirts, water bottles and other items. So what what they did is I think they're they're trying to determine, you know, what the market is and how people feel about stuff. So the company identified 128 division 1 football team mascots and asked them to rate them based on, you know, best and worst mascots to creepiest and most offensive. Okay, the the three the three mascots that were determined to be most offensive in this survey were all, um, were all mascots based on sort of Native American stereotypes, you know, with the face paint and the headdress and stuff like that. That was that was one, two, and three. The Aztec warrior at San Diego State, uh, the warrior at the University of Hawaii, and the um, Osceola and renegade of Florida State. Okay, th- those were the three that were most offensive. You know what came in number four? I'm to give you a minute to think about this. Number four, most offensive behind these three Native American uh, mascots, Notre Dame's Fighting Irish Leprechaun is the fourth most offensive college football mascot in the nation, according to this survey. Um, the Now, this is not the first time that the Fighting Irish have come under fire. A couple years ago, Max Kellerman, he's a guy on ESPN. He called on Notre Dame to do away with the leprechaun, just like Cleveland did away with its mascot, Chief Wahoo. This is what Kellerman said. Many Irish Americans are not offended, but many are. Should that also change? The answer is yes, unequivocally yes. Pernicious negative stereotypes of marginalized people that offend, even some some among them, should be changed. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here is the question. The Fighting Irish, the Leprechaun, ranks number four in most offensive... Mascots, is it time for Notre Dame once and for all to stand up for those of us? And by the way, I'm half Irish. My mom's maiden name was Sheehan. Um, I think she was third generation Irish. Okay, should we be offended? Should Notre Dame... I don't know, in an exercise of, if not political correctness, if just an exercise to make sure that there's nobody, nobody among the downtrodden Irish who feels that they are offended, is it time to get rid of the leprechaun? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line we discuss in a minute.
1: Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Ooh.
0: Melissa Barkley came in. Just heard the end of my well, the, get rid of the leprechaun. Cancel <laughs> like, the what's leprechaun. Going on here? Well, yes, no, no, no. This, this is. I do not make this up. New survey out. The leprechaun, the Fighting Irish. It is ranked the fourth most offensive mascot in college football, behind three Native American mascots. People are outraged, and and again, most. Even acknowledging that, okay, most people of Irish descent, like I said, I'm, I'm half Irish. my mom was all Irish. Um, that that most Irish people look at this and think, oh, that's kind of clever and cute. Just that the, the argument is that if just a handful of people are upset about this, we should change it. eight five, five, six, one, six, one, six, twenty. Jeff, of uh, absolutely not. When does this cancel culture thing stop? Uh I don't know. A number of people ask are we getting rid of lucky charms? Well they're magically delicious, you know, but yeah, we
3: yeah. <laughs> Well I was okay, this sounds really naive, but I was looking at the the mascot, the little logo of the the fighting. I didn't know that was a leprechaun. Yeah. I thought it was just a little Irish guy.
0: It's a leprechaun.
3: Oh, I didn't realize. No. <laughs> I thought it was just, a you know, an Irish guy no. wanting to fight. No, I didn't it's... realize it was a, a leprechaun. Oh, I
0: think that would be even worse. I mean, you know, oh, well, no, no, I don't it's, know. Uh, are, we, are we suggesting that Irish people are prone to fight? Jeff, while they're at it, they have to go after General Mills. The leprechaun on the box of Lucky Charm surely must be offending someone out there in PC land. Um, yes, Jeff, the Irish haters should lighten up. Um uh, it's just, just ban all mascots. That will make these kooks happy. Those who attend the games love their mascots. Well, um, yes. Jeff, my wife was born and raised in Cork, Ireland. She has no problem with the fighting Irish. Not sure if I heard you correctly, but her maiden name is Sheehan as well. Yeah, my mom's maiden name was, was Sheehan. A number of people are saying, well, how can you have lucky charms? Well, that's, that's an issue as well. I, I, and I swear, I, I find these stories, and I do not make them up, because this is where we are in 2021. You've got somebody who wakes up every day and finds themselves offended. And as I said earlier in the show, I I, I do not understand how our listeners in the central part of the state, how can you live with yourself in a community called Madison? Because do not do you not know? That James Madison High School and the city of Madison, as I've said before, was named after James Madison, the fourth president of the United States, who was a slave owner. People are so outraged that they are now, hand in the air, changing the name of James Madison High School. Because it is too offensive to certain students that they should be required to go to a high school that's named after a founding father and a president of the United States who was a slave owner, which then, of course, raises the question, if it can't be James Madison High School, how in the world can it be the city of Madison? Which is my idea. Let's just call it Fred. So, I mean, it, it's going to be Fred. You're going to go to the University of Wisconsin, Fred. You know, we're going to change the name of the capital. It's going to be Fred. I, I think, I mean, I like Fred. I mean, don't we need to do this? If, if we got to get rid of the leprechaun and for the fighting Irish, and we got to get rid of of Lucky Charms, and we've got to get rid of James Madison High School, it is time to rename the capital of the state of Wisconsin, Fred. Tony Evers, where are you? How can you continue to work in a community that is named after such a, I don't know, a terrible person? Inquiring minds want to know.
1: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on
0: WTMJ. One of our texters says, you can't stop... With Madison, it's fine to call it Fred, but Fred cannot be located in Dane County because he says he's Danish. He's offended by that name. Actually, Dane County was named after um, Nathan Dane, a Massachusetts delegate to the Congress of the Confederation who helped carve Wisconsin out of the Northwest Territory. In other words, this was a guy who was carving out land, taking it away from Native Americans. I I just... I don't know. I, 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 don't know. Maybe we have to look at changing Dane County as well. So the, the largest city in what would be Dane County now, we've got to change that to Fred. And I don't know what we're going to call the county. But I mean, I just, where does the political correctness stop? And seriously, how, how can you, how can you tolerate this? Um, yes, the, the fighting Fred. I think there you go. You, <laughs> you can't, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay. Let us switch gears. The, the mess in Afghanistan continues to get worse. Early oh, this today is Tuesday, so this would have been, I think, it was Friday. President Biden, and by the way, Biden's approval ratings. And, and I, I understand that there's a lot of us out there who are very skeptical of polls, and polls, particularly in times when things are starting to go bad, polls are are it, it's they, they can bounce up and down. The thing that has been holding Biden's numbers up is. Up until recently, he's generally been getting high marks on the fact that you know that that, that COVID w- was under control. Now that COVID does not appear to be as much under control, Biden's Biden's numbers on that are going down. But his, his handling of Afghanistan, I think, pretty much everybody except folks who have really been drinking the, the Biden Kool Aid, recognize it's been a debacle. So the most recent poll out today by uh, USA Today and Suffolk. Finds that um, Biden's approval rating, overall job approval rating, has now dropped to forty-one percent versus fifty-five percent who disapprove. Um, you know that's that, that's huge. He has the backing of eighty-seven percent of Democrats, but he's lost independents. Only thirty-two percent of independents say he's doing a good job. Now this, it look it's it's a long time. You know we've got over a year until the midterm elections. And there's plenty of time to, to turn that kind of stuff around. So you got to take this stuff with a grain of salt. But when your approval ratings at 41 and it, and it's plummeting, that that tells you you you've got you, you've got a problem. And the the bigger issue is that there, there's not. I don't think he, he's dug in, and there's not a lot of things he can do, I think, to turn things around. But anyhow, on Friday afternoon, you remember he had this televised address. We we carried it. And I was making a note of this when he said it. One of the things that he said, and I remember thinking, man, I think he's going to regret that. He said that any American, they're going to get all the Americans out. That's what we said. We're going to get all the Americans out. And then a reporter says to him, well, okay, what about our our Afghan allies, the people that if you leave them behind, they're going to get beheaded? You know that that's you know what's going to happen. And he said, we're going to get all them out, too. We're going to get all those people out. And I remember making a note saying, OK, um, he said it. How is he going to deliver on it? And and now we find out that it's extremely unlikely that he's going to be able to do that. All right. Biden had said that he was going to have troops out by August 31st, which is next week. Right. Next week. Well, the, the, the problem is. There's no way in God's green earth that you're going to be able to get the tens of thousands of Americans who are still out there. You're not going to be able to get them all out by August 31st, and you're especially not going to be able to get all the Afghans who worked for the U.S. government who want to get out. There's no way you're going to be able to get out. On top of all this, okay, to make it worse, the Taliban, which now controls You know, pretty much all of Afghanistan, including uh, Kabul, the Taliban has now said, well, okay, Americans, we're going to let them go to the airport, but we're not going to let any Afghans go. So this promise that you made, Mr. Biden, Mr. President, this promise that you said you're going to get all these people out ain't going to happen because we're not going to let them pass through our checkpoints. We'll let Americans pass through, but otherwise, you know, that that's it. You know, you can take care of of your own, your own being the Americans, but everybody else is staying. On top of that, um, the Taliban, which now appears to be dictating terms to the United States, the Taliban has said, all right, you you know august 31st is the the drop dead date this this is um you know we we this is our red line and if you don't have all american troops out of here by august 31st Regardless of, you know, whether we've gotten the Afghans out, regardless of whether we've gotten all the Americans out, that's too bad. You know, there is going to be consequences. And Biden apparently today has caved into the Taliban and said, okay, well, we're, you know, August 31st will be be our deadline. Our number 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet mortgage talk and text line. When we have discussed this over the last week. My beef has not been as much with the decision to ultimately get the United States out of Afghanistan. It's been with the appalling way that this was orchestrated and the cluelessness, whether it's the bad intelligence or whatever. But now we've got a real mess. So, all right, August 31st rolls around. Next week rolls around. And you still got thousands of Americans who haven't been able to get out of Afghanistan. And you've got tens of thousands of Afghanis who fought for and with the United States who now aren't even being allowed by the Taliban to get to the airport. All right. Do we really pull out? Can we leave these people behind? 855-616-1620. That's the accurate mortgage talk and text line. A- and how is a practical matter, do we get them out? I mean, Biden is now in the process. He's already sent back several thousand troops to, secry- to try to secure the airport. I mean, can we really bail on August 31st if we still have our people, whether it's U.S. citizens or whether it's these people that we promised to get out? Can we just allow the Taliban to force us to cut and run. eight five five six one six one six twenty 616 1620 And my answer is, is no. My answer is, at some point in time, you'd like to see the President of the United States develop some leadership and say, look, we're committed to getting out of here, Taliban, but here's the truth. We're taking our people and we're taking, you know, all the other people who have assisted us, and we're not going to have terms dictated to you by Uh, to us by you we at the end of the day are the united states of america 855-616-1620 we discuss
1: this is jeff wagner on wtmj
0: 855-616-1620 jeff biden got bullied by terrorists not a good look no it's not Jeff, I'm embarrassed to see how weak of a president we have. This has nothing to do with being a Republican or a Democrat, because even though I'm a Republican, I firmly believe Obama would not have done this either. Our country looks worse and worse every week from poor leadership. Uh, yes, um, yes, there, there's no question about this. Jeff, I feel bad for all the veterans that fought over there. Well, what, what I feel bad about is the fact that we have made this commitment, that we've made this commitment that we're going to get all the Americans out. Now, that's why the August 31st date was was a dumb date to put in in the first place before we knew that we could get them out. So are you going to leave Americans behind? But now what's even a greater sign of weakness is Biden specifically promised all our Afghan allies, the people that if we leave behind, they're going to get beheaded. that That's just that's the reality. The women are going to be sexually assaulted. The men are going to be killed. We know that's going to happen. Now the Taliban is saying we're not letting those people go. The, the Taliban is dictating to the United States, you know, what, what's going to happen. They're saying we're not going to let you get your your people. And I understand when I'm saying that. I mean, not just the Americans, but the people that we've committed to help. Taliban saying you can't have them. And Joe Biden is oh, all right. You know, we'll we'll see where this goes. How can that happen? Let's talk to Marcus on the north side. Hi, Marcus.
3: Hey, uh, Jeff. Uh, long time uh, uh, here talking to you. But, uh, man, you have making some excellent points today. I just want to point out real fast is this is that it has nothing to do with Republican or Democrat. At this point, this is a. Uh, a natural uh, this is a disaster yes um we should have been pulling out prior to this date yes we should have intel went when biden took office we should have started pulling out secretly i call it secretly yep. and the veterans and my dad he was in the military here we should have been pulling out from the day that yep. biden took office and Said, hey we got this date coming up we know there's what trump committed to right right so we should have been starting the, the process, the slow process. We should have been flying people out of it. No more people coming in, getting Americans out here. Now what you're going to have is this big collateral damage, and it's, it's, this is going to. You, you think Saigon was worse? Yeah. Which you see this deal on the 31st, Jeff, and I just think that um, the people that are left behind, the people that did help the Afghans, that did help America, they're done. It, it's unfortunate but we're just going to chalk it up to the game that this is collateral damage. But I really think that this could have been handled from day one when Biden took over. What do you think?
0: I know that day I, Marcus, I I, I agree with you completely. I mean, there's, it's not, whenever I talk about this, I get some of the the hardcore Biden defenders who say, well, wait a second, do you want to be in a forever war? No. I I mean, candidly, you know, you can make an argument that, the, the American military presence, which was you know twenty five hundred, we we've had military presence in in Korea since the end of the world war uh, since the end of the Korean conflict. We've had a military presence in Europe since the end of World War II. But but okay, I. I I understand, all right, if if we want to get those remaining couple thousand troops out, that's fine. We had systematic chances to do this, and and we didn't. We, We blew it. You're exactly right. We should have been making a strategic withdrawal. We should have been getting Americans out over the course of the last several months, and we should have been getting our Afghan partners out. All right, and that's all well and good. But then when the president comes out and talks to the country on Friday and says, everybody's getting out. Alright, that, that then, to me, that's him putting down this red line, and now already we're retreating from that, because the Taliban is saying, no, we're not giving you the Afghanis. You know, we, I, I mean, and I, I don't, there, there's tens of thousands of those folks, and, you know, we're, we we, it appears that Joe Biden is going to leave them behind, and if they're murdered, if they're raped, if the women are raped, it, it's just, you know, okay, like you say, Marcus, it's collateral damage. And, look, it, it's a bad situation. But there, there's no question. I just don't think the United States can allow itself to be dictated to by, again, essentially what is nothing but a, a rogue terrorist nation. Now, I understand it's a mess. And a couple of people are texting me saying, look, the problem is if we don't abandon people, well, then we're, you know, gonna get into like a Black Hawk down situation. So we, we should just cut and run. And if that means leaving thousands of Americans behind, well, we've left thousands of Americans behind too bad. If it means leaving tens of thousands of People who were our allies, who we made a commitment to, if it means leaving them behind too bad. Well, okay. If, if that's the way you think, next time the U.S. decides it, it wants to go in and try to enlist the aid of, I don't know, people to help free them or whatever, um, how, how is the U.S.'s word good for anything? And look, I, I understand it's a mess, and it's a mess that's been caused by by pre- every president going back to the first President Bush mishandled something with Afghanistan. So there's a lot of bipartisan blame to go around, but it's impossible to think of how Joe Biden could have messed this up more. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic
1: Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now,
0: WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Melissa Barkley, should we break some news here? we we'll break you think? some news. Let's break some news. All right, this was perhaps inevitable. Um, after, I think that there were a lot of places that were, were holding back on mandating the, the vaccines until they moved from emergency status to fully approved by the FDA. I I think it's just I think because a lot of employers felt that they might be on on tighter legal grounds if they did it. So I have it's actually I was going to say it's on my screen, but I I will say I have in my hands a memo that came out from the city of Milwaukee um, about 30 minutes ago. So this is kind of hot off the presses Um, update city of Milwaukee vaccination policy update. Let's see. In accordance with the City of Milwaukee's duty to provide and maintain a workplace free of known hazards, the City of Milwaukee will implement a mandatory vaccination policy effective Wednesday, September 1st, 2021, for um, COVID-19 for general city employees, including temporary employees and interns. We are adopting this policy to safeguard the health of our employees, their families, visitors, and residents we serve. Employees must submit proof of vaccination or receive the vaccination by Friday, October 29th, 2021. Individuals seeking an exemption from this requirement for medical or religious reasons should complete a request for accommodation form and submit the form to their personnel officers. Requests will be reviewed on a case-by-case basis. Okay, so they're saying you got to get vaccinated. Here's So here's what the consequence is. Um, employees who do not comply with the mandate by the deadline will be placed on unpaid leave for up to 30 days further failure to comply with the policy will result in separation from employment. Then it goes on to say that the health department will conduct various vaccination clinics um, the week of, let's see, starting on Tuesday, September 7th, and various places that they run there. The Milwaukee Health Department will return to each site to administer the second dose of the vaccine in accordance to the vaccination timelines. Um, all employees can also go to their primary health care provider, local pharmacy, etc. The City of Milwaukee will provide up to two hours of paid leave for the time spent um, receiving the vaccination. So the bottom line of this is if you work for the government, City of Milwaukee government, and this includes general city employees, temporary employees and interns, you will be required to submit proof of vaccination by October 29th of 2021. If you do not do that and you don't have an approved medical reason or uh, an accepted religious reason, you get placed on unpaid leave for up to 30 days and um, further failure to comply will result in you losing your job. So this doesn't, th- this isn't healthcare workers, mind you, this is this is everybody. This is the guys that, you know, walk behind the garbage trucks. This is the guys who, you know, do any, any sort of other work that's there. I assume this applies to police officers and things of the like as, as well. General city employees, um, have to be vaccinated. 855 1620 That's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. All right. I'm a guy who, and I've said this before, I am pro-vaccination. I got vaccinated as soon as I was eligible to get vaccinated. I, I had, and this is even after I had COVID last November, I, I, I had no problem with it and no no adverse reaction at all. And when when I come due for the booster shot, I think I, which is probably not going to be till late fall, I, I, I mean, I have no problem with doing it. I, I just, I, I, I will do it. I, I'm not against it. However, I do have problems with the mandatory vaccine requirements. And I think you can be you can be pro-vaccine, but not necessarily in favor of the mandatory vaccine requirements. I think it's perfectly reasonable for employers, for example, to say, Look, if you're not going to get vaccinated, we're going to put in all these requirements. You got to wear masks, you got to be tested, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as a way of again trying to use that that stick, not the carrot, but the stick to make it so onerous that people just decide, "Well, the heck with it, I'm, I'm going to get vaccinated." But the city of Milwaukee has now said to all their general city employees, "You must be vaccinated." Period. 855-616-1620. What do you think of that? We discuss in just a minute.
1: Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
0: Let me correct just one thing that this mandate applies to all general city employees which includes temporary employees and interns, it does not include union represented employees, which would be police and fire um, and, and others as well. So th- th- this does not apply to unionized employees because, again, that's something they probably have to deal with with the, the unions. But um, the city says it remains in discussion with public employee unions about vaccination requirements. But otherwise, unless you're unless you're protected by the union, um, in this case, mandatory vaccines or else 30 days unpaid leave. And then after that, you will be terminated. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Bob in Greenfield. Hi, Bob.
4: Hi, Jeff. Um, I, I, I agree with the city of Milwaukee. Um, I uh, got my last. Uh, shot of the vaccine at the end of may and i think it was like 47.1 where fully vaccinated state now it's like 50 you know it's not moving right it's not moving you know, the idea of um herd immunity i i think something has to be done i mean we have this vaccine and we're not getting people to take it and then you get the different uh strains that grow from the existing strains i, I think the good of the many outweighs the good of the few and i i do believe you know the hundred dollar gift card and mm-hmm. and this you know the, the pressure is uh
0: what if is, what if i, I again I, I don't know what percentage of city employees are vaccinated or or not let, let's assume let's assume sixty percent and, and it might be 50 percent it might be 70 percent but just for the sake of argument let, let's assume sixty percent what if what if of that remaining 40, only half decide to get vaccinated and half say, I'm, I'm not going to do this. Um, who, who's going to fill those jobs?
4: Well, obviously, they're jobs of um, greater importance than other, like police and fire. Yeah. And uh, it's got to be hard to even consider being a policeman now. But, yeah. you know there are there are problems in states now that are under vaccinated where mm-hmm. you know they're getting these new surges and mm-hmm. their health care uh, departments are being overwhelmed and yeah. I just can't imagine letting that happen to you know like healthcare care workers in our system where you could be in a car accident and you get taken, but there's no bed in the uh yeah well, intensive I, care there's no
0: yeah, yeah bob i say i understand and look and that, that's why you're talking to somebody who got vaccinated and and i I I encourage people to do that, but there's a difference between encouraging people to do it, and that's why I said yesterday. I mean, I, if you want to give people hundred bucks, I the gift card. I, I'm I'm not sure that there's many people that's going to motivate. But we had a lady call up and say that she was always going to get her kids vaccinated, and, and now that's given her kind of added incentive. And I I get that. I I just think that there's a lot of people dug in, and I'm not sure how people respond to to ultimatums on this particular issue. Now I have a number of people who are texting me and and the, the general argument is, "Jeff, I I've had COVID." This is this is the argument. "I've had COVID. I have antibodies." Well, you know, it's kind of like chicken pox. You know, I didn't get the chicken pox vaccine because I had chicken pox as a kid. So I, I have these antibodies. Why should my employer be able to force me to to have this as a condition of of my employment, especially outside the, the health arena? I think when you're we're talking about healthcare workers, it's a different sort of situation. Um, I, and again, I. I, this is coming from the perspective of somebody who thinks folks should be vaccinated. I'm just wondering what the long-term consequence of this is. And I, I, again, I, I raise these questions. What's, what's going to happen come October 29th if you have a significant number of city workers who have suddenly decided that they're not going to get vaccinated? I mean, who's, who's going to do this? job. Um Jeff, um like my last question to you, what about the millions of people who have had COVID already and have antibodies? They don't need the vaccine. Why is there such a push for everyone to be vaccinated? Well, you know, that's I mean that 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 that's the issue. And and part of this is science Science doesn't know. I, we, we keep getting told to follow the science, but but science changes in, on a weekly basis. Two weeks ago, we were told that you need booster shots. Now they're saying, well, we think you need booster shots. And again, I'm, I'm not anti-shot. I've got mine. I'll get my booster shot when I come due in November or th- whenever that, that would be. So I, I'm not... I'm certainly not sitting here discouraging people to do it, but the reality is there's lots of folks who, who do have these these kind of questions about it. And should it be a condition of your employment that you have to get this vaccine, especially when it's not like you're working in a health care setting? I, and I going back to the, the point our, our caller Bob was making, I, I do think. I think these requirements, and I know I've talked about this uh, too much, but I mean, Biden says, hey, I'm going to mandate that all these these nursing homes, everybody in the nursing homes have to all the employees have to have um, vaccinations. Well, okay, nationally. Uh, there's about 40 percent of nursing home workers who are unvaccinated that that's nationally and again it it varies from state to state and it varies from community to community but already you've got a ton of vacancies in nursing homes you got 40 percent that aren't vaccinated let's assume 20 percent do get vaccinated that still leaves you with 20 percent more who aren't vaccinated you're going to really fire all those people who's going to empty the bedpans who's going to change the sheets who's going to do the cooking and and that's the problem with vaccine mandates, where you try to use government coercion or employer coercion to change behavior. And I just I, I wonder if it's going to work. A matter of fact, I, I I candidly doubt that it's going to work because the people who are dug in on the vaccines uh there, I think a lot of them are just going to simply say, you know, no, we're we're not going to do this. Ed in Wauwatosa. Ed, you're on WTMJ.
5: Yeah. I think we're way past the point where you can try to have it both ways. Early on, I, I was like what you said. I like what you said. If it's appropriate for a workplace setting, require it. Otherwise, not. But the only way this virus persists is going from person to person to person. Mm-hmm. And the only way we can stop it from going from person to person to person is either vaccination or distance. Vast work, but they're not nearly as effective as, as either of the other two. And are you going to make people go away forever and ever and return back to hibernation like a year ago? I don't think so. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm with you on that.
5: Is only, vaccination is the only thing that will make this go away. Worse, imagine if it mutates. and becomes even more of a factor. This is not good. We have to get in front of it. And guess what? It is not going to fix itself.
0: No, it's not. Matter of fact, I, I think even if you get vaccinations up another 15 percentage points, I, I think it's still not going to go. away. I think we I think we're going to be living with covid for the yes, next several years.
5: Yes, because we didn't insist on it early on. We could have prevented the mutations that were more severe.
0: Should the government come out and mandate it? Should the government just say everybody's got to get a shot?
5: You know what? Everybody has to wear a seatbelt when you drive a car, but car doesn't run. You can't drive over uh, .08. You can't drive through a red stoplight. This is not a matter of your individual rights; it's a matter of public
0: safety. Mm-hmm. So your answer, your answer to that question would be yes. You would support the government saying every every eligible person has to get a should have to get the vaccine.
5: At this point, that is the case. Uh, again, a year ago, not maybe not so much, but today, when we see how it's mutated, how it's become more virulent,
3: mm-hmm.
5: oh, yeah. if you do nothing. How's it going to get better?
0: Well, thanks. Well, I mean, I don't think it's a question of doing, I don't think it's a question of doing nothing. Again, you're talking to somebody who's pro-vaccine. So I, I, get it because I don't want to, even though I had a very mild case of COVID, I don't want to get sick again. I don't want my wife to get sick again. Don't want, you know, I don't want friends of mine who might have some underlying health issues to get it. Yeah, I, I, I want to, I want a sense of normalcy as well. I just question whether this idea that we can force people into getting the vaccines whether that's going to work or whether that's going to create, you know, even more of of a backlash for this, and I also question what the role of the workplace is. For um, by, by that I mean, look, I think I think an employer has every right to set rules down which are going to keep the, the your fellow coworkers safe, and I mean I think that, that that's reasonable. Um, which is why I support these efforts that say, for example, if you're not going to get vaccinated and, and you're going to come into the workplace, we're going to test the heck out of you. You know, we're, we're going to make you go through, you know, COVID tests, you know, twice a week or whatever that number is to, to have, and we're going to stick the thing up your nose and we're going to do all this to make sure that you don't have it. I think that's a legitimate role for an employer to make sure the workplace is safe, but fundamentally, is it the role of the employer to try to force people to, in this case, you know, take an injection, which, which they might not want to take. Is that, is that reasonable? Because it goes beyond just the whole issue of workplace safety. And once again, this comes from a perspective of somebody who does encourage people to get vaccinated because I don't think there's any downside to this. And I do agree with you. I think ultimately the, the way out of this is if we could get 80 to 90 percent of the population to be vaccinated. But should we force them to do that when we come back? We'll find out what uh, John and Melissa have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Stick around.